Beloved saints, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. Let us give our attention to the reading of it. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and greatly to be praised. And we long to know you, your works, your attributes, your character. And it's these that you've recorded for us in your word and have preserved through the ages so that each generation might come afresh and behold your grace, your love, and your power. And so as we come to your word, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold its treasures, that you would allow us to gaze upon the beauty of your splendor. Humble us. Encourage us and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom we meet in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Is all worship uh, acceptable to God? Hebrews 12, we heard it in our call to worship this morning, commands us to offer acceptable worship, which clearly means that it's possible not to. In other words, there is some worship that is unacceptable to our God. And that forces us to ask, what is it that makes worship acceptable or not? And whose job is it to judge it? And what happens... 
when those whose job it is refuse to do their jobs? What happens to God? What happens to the worshipers? I wonder if you're getting uncomfortable yet. Because these are not questions the church likes to ask. And to a great extent today, there are, these are questions the church refuses to ask. And if they do, the temptation is to make the answer an internal question. Only you can decide what is acceptable. No one else can tell you. If it feels right, then do it. Worship is best when it's authentic, when, it, when, it, when you are, are true to yourself, is what we hear today. And these questions about acceptable worship and whose job it is to guard that are the questions that Malachi addresses as he turns his attention to the priests of Israel. Last week we, we noted, as we began this book of Malachi, that he really addresses two questions. Does God love Israel? And does Israel love God? And last week, we looked at that first question and saw how God has loved and demonstrated his his, uh, faithfulness to Israel over the years. And today, we're turning to the second question. And, And as we do, and this is really what the rest of the book is about, the first focus is on worship and what Israel is offering and whether or not it is acceptable to God. And God's answer is not to turn the people back to themselves and say, well, do you feel like it's acceptable? In fact, his rebuke is on the priest of Israel for letting the people do whatever they want. And he's telling the priests that they have served neither God nor the people in doing this. In fact, they have endangered the very people they are called to serve. One of the dangers with preaching through the books of the Bible the way we do is that it forces you to deal with uncomfortable passages like this. It would be so nice, wouldn't it, if we could just skip them. What are we going to do? Pretend it's not here or... Are we going to face it head on and allow it to challenge us? Well, we know what God would tell us. God would say, let this passage pull back the curtain and shine the light of God's truth on your hearts, on your church, and on your worship. That is the only option that would be acceptable to our God, the only option worthy of our God. And so we're going to jump in. Uh, with the prayer that as we do, we would have the Lord's grace to hear his word and submit to it. I want to look at this passage and what it has to say about the priests and their failure to guard the doors of the temple, the doors of worship, and that's where we're going to start. What was the job of the priests and how were they failing? And after that, we'll be able to see that Jesus is the better priest. Uh, This goes along with what we've been hearing in Sunday school. Uh, Jesus is the one who has done what the priest in Israel failed to do in, in at least two different ways. And then I want to close our time after we do that, after we see the 
failure of the priests of Israel, the success of Jesus, the better priest, then we'll close our time by asking how this addresses all of us and our worship and our lives today and what it means that leaders in the church, like the priests before them, are keepers of the keys of the doors of God's house and what they are responsible to do. That's what we're going to look at today. And the message through all this will simply be this. God is jealous for the purity of his worship, and he expects leaders in the church to guard it. It's really that simple. God cares a lot about worship, and he expects the leaders in his church to guard it. So that's what we're going to look at uh, as we continue our study in Malachi. Uh, To understand what's going on in our passage, we we need to go back uh, to Israel in the wilderness as they were preparing to enter the promised land. Remember they had come up out of Egypt where they had been enslaved for four centuries. Uh, Moses led them through the Red Sea into the wilderness. They ended up kind of hanging out there for 40 years. Uh, And then as they prepared to enter the promised land, God started giving them instructions. And he told them that when they got into the land, his name, his name would dwell in the tabernacle. Now, that sounds like a weird way to talk. We don't talk like that. Where does your name live? Uh, We don't say things like that. But it's not strange for God because God's name is the revelation of who he is. And in other words, he's saying, this is where I will reveal myself to you. And this is where I will meet with you. And this is where you will worship me. He told them that as they come to that tabernacle, which would later be replaced by the temple, they would be tempted to invent ways to worship that they liked. Ways that please them. And he told them, don't try it. He would tell them how to worship. And they should follow his instructions, adding nothing and omitting nothing. But God didn't stop there. He appointed priests to stand guard over the tabernacle and later the temple. That's what it literally says. You are the, the Levites are there to guard. You think, well, that's interesting language. Guard what? And God tells us two things, actually. First, they were to guard the holiness of the tabernacle, where God's name dwelt, and therefore guard the holiness of God's name. Because if anyone comes into God's house, which is holy, anyone who's not supposed to be there, if anything unclean is brought in, it would defile the tabernacle and the name that dwells there. And Numbers tells us that the punishment for doing that is death. Numbers 3.38. Which means the second thing the priests were, were guarding was actually the people themselves from this wrath. Guarding the tabernacle from being defiled. Guarding the people from the wrath that they would incur for defiling it. Numbers said that the the, the Levites would camp around the tabernacle, and it says, so that no wrath would come upon the people of Israel. Numbers 1, 53. Because God's presence is so serious, so weighty, all caution must be made entering into his presence. And the priest are called doorkeepers, like in Ezra and Psalm 84, because a big part of their job 
was overseeing who and what came into the tabernacle. Kind of like Gandalf, you shall not pass. Uh, Maybe I shouldn't go there. They didn't just guard who went in, but what went in. What sacrifices were allowed to come in and be offered. And that is what is in view in our passage in Malachi 1. Because the people were required to bring sacrifices to their God and offer them up for their sins. The life of the, of the animal in place of the life of the sinner. Because the wages of sin is death. And God gave them very clear instructions on what kinds of animals were acceptable and what wasn't. The animals that they offered had to be the very best of their flock. Nothing blind uh, or lame or sick, uh, no spot or blemish, nothing old and decrepit, only the best. Anything else was an absolute insult to God. Because what you offer to him is a reflection of what you think of him. I think we get this because we do the same things in our home. You would would never invite an honored guest into your home and then give them the absolute worst you had to offer. Only the best. How much more with God? Have you ever had someone uh, give you a gift that was clearly an afterthought? It's insulting. You'd rather have nothing at all than the half-hearted afterthought. And God's no different. He'd rather have people offer him nothing than offer him the leftovers. And when the people got to the tabernacle with their sacrifices, they, they could not enter and offer the sacrifices themselves. They would bring those and they'd, they'd hand them over to the priest and the priest would take them inside and sacrifice them on the altar or as our passage calls it, the table of the Lord, the Lord's table. But remember their job, they weren't supposed to allow anything into the tabernacle that is unworthy. And so before an animal could be offered, they were to be inspected by the priest to make sure they met God's standards. They were the doorkeepers. That's their job. You are responsible for what goes through these doors. And the people were bringing these blind and lame and sick animals, verses 8 and 13. They were promising one thing, but bringing another, verse 14. Can you imagine uh, a friend coming over? Imagine you had some animals and you periodically butchered them for food and, and a friend comes over and you go out to select the animal for dinner. Can you imagine picking the one limping with an open sore and saying, how about this one? I don't think he's going to live much longer anyway. Your friend's not going to be hungry for dinner. Or can you imagine going over to a friend's house who has two cows? One's clearly his prize cow, full, strong. The other, sick, death door. And looking at the healthy one, your friend says, this is the best cow I've ever raised. He's going to the butcher this week, and I want you to come over 
and enjoy the prime cut with me next week. You come over the next week and halfway through dinner you look out the kitchen and there goes that prime cow. <laughs> but the sick one is nowhere to be found. You're thinking, what did I just eat? It's not how you treat friends. Offer one thing, but bring another. Offer them the worst, the sick, the dying, the diseased. And yet this is how Israel is treating their God. And their attitude is, hey, at least we're not worshiping false gods. God should be grateful that that we're doing anything at all. But if you're giving God the leftovers and keeping the best for yourself, who are you serving? Who are you worshiping? Because it's not God. This is what God means when he says they weren't giving him the honor due, their father, their master, their lord, their king, in verses 6 and 14. To say that they were despising him doesn't mean that they were raging and yelling at him. It means that they were treating him as if he was simply not that important. Not worthy of honor. And for God, it's the same thing. Indifference towards God is hatred. There was a crisis of worship in Israel... And whose job was it to watch over worship, to protect the Lord's table from being defiled, and and to protect the people from bringing God's wrath upon themselves? It was the priest's job. They're the doorkeepers, and they're lying down on the job. They're they're taking those, those blind and those sick and those lame sacrifices into God's house and offering it up and calling it worship. And God is furious. And he assures them in verses 10 and 11, he will be worshiped. He will be honored even if he has to close this temple and go to the Gentiles. And so he tells them in verse 10, I do not accept your worship. I reject your worship. Verse 9, their only hope is to repent, fall down, seek God's face, seek his mercy. And God holds the priest guilty, not for the people bringing bad sacrifices. That's, that's on the people. He blames the priest for failing to correct them when they did. And for accepting those sacrifices and taking them into God's house. And by doing so, the priests are essentially promoting false worship by failing to correct the people. And in so doing, they share in the people's sin. They share in the people's guilt. Look at verse 10. He longs for just one priest, one priest in the whole group who would be willing to shut those doors so that those detestable sacrifices might no longer be brought in. 
Does not one of you have the courage to say enough is enough and bar those doors and saying they will not open again until you bring sacrifices that are worthy of the name that dwells in this house? Is it any wonder that one of the very first things Jesus did in his earthly ministry was cleanse the temple? Because he takes his father's honor seriously. He was acting the way a priest should. He was showing himself to be the better priest, the the priest that Israel needed, who would shut the door on half-hearted worship. But that wasn't the only job of the priest, was it? To to shut the door against false worship. It was the, the, that was one of the ways the priest saved the people from God's wrath, but it was insufficient by itself. Because isn't that what the sacrifices themselves were about? About protecting people from God's wrath? Satisfying God's wrath by offering the life of one in the place of another? The wages of sin is death, and something needs to die. But no matter how good, how spotless and perfect and strong and healthy that bull, that lamb, that goat are, it would still never be enough to truly remove your sin and your guilt. Yes, we need a better priest who's willing to cleanse the temple, but we also need a better sacrifice. And so God sent one for us. And He didn't send the leftovers. He didn't send something lame or blind or sick. Our God sent the absolute best he had. He sent his own son. And so Jesus, the better priest, offered himself the better sacrifice without spot or blemish. Sinless, perfect the absolute best, and he satisfied God's wrath, we're told. Because of him, Hebrews tells us that we can now enter into God's presence with boldness and confidence. In other words, Jesus is not just the doorkeeper, he is the door by which we enter into God's presence. The way to the Father. And so all who repent, who seek God's face through Jesus Christ, they find peace, they find forgiveness, they find a refuge from God's wrath. Our our high priest has guarded us and the holiness of God's presence. He's done both perfectly. And so those who seek him, they find salvation. It's the job of the priest. To guard both God's holiness and the worshiper from his wrath. And I think the temptation is to say, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And and don't get me wrong, we should all say praise the Lord, hallelujah. But the temptation is to say, so now we don't need to worry about our worship. Because Jesus has done everything for us. But what Jesus has done for us doesn't lessen the importance of acceptable worship. It heightens it. As my daughter put it this week, God gave his absolute best for your salvation, his own son. Nothing less than your absolute best is an appropriate response. 
And so that reality has to shape the sacrifices we bring. But you say, wasn't Jesus the sacrifice? Hasn't he put an end to sacrifice? Pastor, what can I possibly bring? Now, to be sure, I'm not asking you to bring bulls and goats to church next week. Please don't. But the Bible does talk about sacrifices that we continue to offer. Let me list four for you. Hebrews 13 tells us we offer a sacrifice of praise. When we gather for worship, our songs and our prayers are sacrifices that we bring to our God. And so we should strive to make them worthy of our God. Both in content and passion. Philippians 4 talks about the monetary gifts that the Philippian church gave uh, to the apostle. And, and, And Paul says it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, there's that word, and pleasing to God. This is why we bring our gifts in the context of worship. And that means when you make sure all your needs and wants are covered first and then look at what's left over for God, it's like bringing the blind, the sick, and the lame while keeping the best for yourself. But it's not just our praise, it's not just our gifts. God calls our suffering a sacrifice that we offer up to him in, in Philippians 2.17. So when you're willing to endure hardships, you're offering a sacrifice to your God. In fact, Romans tells us the fourth gift is our entire lives. The fourth gift is our, uh, uh, the fourth sacrifice is our entire lives. They are offered up, he, uh, Romans 12 says, uh, as living sacrifices, holy and, there's the word again, acceptable to our Lord. And what that means is, well, that, that well, what happens on Sunday morning is, is extremely important and central to the Christian life. The rest of the week is extremely important as well. God is saying that as if you live as if he's not important, Monday through Saturday, don't bother coming on Sunday. If he's not Lord of your life, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday then he's not Lord of your life on Sunday. If you're not offering up your life every day, don't think you can offer it up just one day. The New Testament never lowers the need for our worship to be acceptable. When Ananias and Sapphira vowed one thing but brought another in Acts 5, the very thing verse 14 condemns, they paid with their life. Uh, In Corinth, the rich were offering up uh, the poor while serving themselves. And that came into focus at the Lord's table. Interesting. That name comes from Malachi 1. The rich were eating. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. And the poor were forced to go hungry. And 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that some paid with their lives. Clearly, God still takes his worship seriously. 
But more to the point, the church still has leaders who are called to be doorkeepers. Or the the language the New Testament uses is keepers of the keys. Uh, Shortly before uh, Jesus was crucified, he told his disciples that he was entrusting them with what he calls the keys of the kingdom. And that they had the authority to open and to close the kingdom to people. They were doorkeepers. Open and closing. Their authority was like that of the priests in the Old Testament to examine and make a declaration. And so when someone is is seen to to believe the truth and, and to be living a life that is fitting for a Christian, that person is to be admitted into the church. The doors are to be opened. When a person denies the faith, either by doctrine or by an immoral life, he is to be removed from the church. The doors are to be closed. The authority was entrusted not just to the apostles, but two chapters later, Jesus makes it clear to every local church. Leaders in the local church are responsible for opening and closing the doors. And that's done through membership and through church discipline. It protects God's house, the church, from being defiled. And it protects the people from thinking that they are doing well when in reality they are offering unacceptable sacrifices in worship. In case you're wondering, yes, I know that this is not a popular thought. I get it. But it's as clear as day on the pages of Scripture. Our God has not changed. Leaders bear this responsibility because God has given it to them and he expects them to follow his instructions. And his stinging rebuke, the one we read in Malachi, is reserved for those who refuse that responsibility. It's not optional. Many a church has fallen because the leaders failed to sound the alarm and when necessary, shut the doors. And the Lord says to us as he did to Malachi, Oh, that one among you would shut the doors that you might, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. All of this becomes extremely visible for us in coming to the Lord's table, which 1 Corinthians 10 identifies uh, with, with the altar in Israel. Seeing the lessons that, that, that the Israel learned through the prophet Malachi apply to us today. 1 Corinthians goes on and says that the Lord's table makes visible those who are genuine, that is, those who have been approved, Those to whom the doors have been opened. Here in worship, we we don't offer up bulls and and goats. We, We offer up our lives to Jesus in response to his offering up his life for us. And so it's our lives that must be approved and examined. 
Leaders in the church are keepers of the keys. They're responsible for opening or, if necessary, closing the door to this table. And that's, that's weighty. It might sound harsh. But it's actually a blessing. Because those who come and eat and drink unworthily don't eat and drink blessing. They, they eat and drink judgment, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. Protecting someone from doing that is an act of mercy. It's a ministry as much today as it was in Malachi 1. Because ultimately it's not meant to keep you away, but to help you come in the correct way. If you're here today and you're not a communion member in good standing in the church, and by church I mean uh, Protestant Bible-believing churches, not just ours, the Lord is calling you to come and be examined so that you might enter in. If you are a communion member, this table is meant to, to comfort you knowing that, that you've been examined and declared to be genuine. So let us come with gratitude and, and humility. Let us pray that the doorkeepers in our church, in every church, would take their role seriously. That they would do it well so that our God's name might not be defiled and so that we might not bring God's uh, judgment down on us, but his blessing, his comfort, his love. So we come with joy, but a weighty joy, a good joy, a sober joy. So I'd like to ask Pastor Isaac um, and the elders we have here uh, to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Father, some passages are harder to hear than others. But we need to hear them. We need to know how seriously you take your worship, what you have called your leaders to, and what happens when they refuse. Ignorance serves no one. And so we pray, we ask, we plead for humility to hear these things and to repent and seek your face and to live in accord with your word. And we pray for your doorkeepers, the leaders in your church. May they, with wisdom, with grace, with gentleness, with kindness, serve your people, even when that means correcting or closing the doors. Use their ministry for the glory of your name. Let your name be praised among the nations, we ask. Amen.